Maybe I could be like an announcer, like a columnist. I don't believe what I just saw. You know how I always make those interesting comments during the game? Personally, I think we got holes on that call. Yeah, yeah, you make good comments. So what about that? You know, they tend to give those jobs to ex-ball players and people that are, you know, in broadcast. What about a talk show host? This is In the Booth. Talk show host, that's good. <laughs> I think I'd be good at that. I talk to people all the time. With Matt Park. Welcome In the Booth, everybody, on a Monday of sunshiny day. Sunshiny day, hard to say. As we get started today, orange basketball in the middle of this week. Off to Beantown tomorrow to play Wednesday night late, 9 o'clock start. Back home for a Saturday engagement with Clemson here in the Dome. And uh, coming off this uh, tobacco road swing where the Orange had losses to uh, North Carolina and Duke. A close loss at home to a Carolina team that at that point had won six in a row. And a not-so-close loss at Duke. game that was close for a part. And then uh, Blue Devils peeled away in the end, and uh, I thought flexed their muscles. I think a lot of this has to do with timing. If these two games were in the early part of the ACC season in January, you would almost look at them as encouraging. Uh, right now, I don't particularly look at them as discouraging. We're going to get to uh, some of the fan reaction of people that clearly do. But you see the measuring stick, and Duke is the bar in terms of talent, maybe in all of college basketball, but certainly in the ACC. That team is low dead. And I left with the impression how have they lost five games? How do they win four in a row without Marvin Bagley and then come back and dominate with him off a knee injury? He was an absolute beast. He and uh, Wendell Carter combining uh, in the uh, two-man high-low game really exposed uh, Syracuse's uh, struggles in the interior defense. With all due respect to Pascal Chuku, we're going to hear uh, from Coach Beheim about him here in just a moment. But uh, the Orange were uh, destroyed in the paint, 36 points to 12, and uh, Duke took advantage once uh, Chuku fouled out and uh, rolled to its 12th ACC victory of the season. Both teams really struggled, and we're going to get to uh, some of the sound on that in terms of the offensive end, showed Syracuse's defense continues to be strong, holding Duke to a season low in scoring. We are in the booth, brought to you as always by Burdick Toyota and CH Insurance. Good to have you in with us on the show today. You can call us if you'd like at 315-437-7644. That's 4ESPN44. And uh, this one, Polly, brought out the, uh, again, the vitriol. that You can't judge the world, I don't think, by Twitter. Not I don't think. Let me strike that. You can't judge the world by Twitter, period. But the amount of emotion that comes out after a loss like this befuddles me. Syracuse is absolutely overmatched going into that game. If you want to get into the reasons they were overmatched, uh, that might be a, a different discussion. But the whole idea that anything noteworthy happened because they lost that game in lopsided fashion or this guy should be fired or that guy, what are you talking about? They went against a uh, presumptive number one seed, certainly a top five team that was rolling, playing at home, Duke's won 29 of 30 now against unranked teams at home. Duke was going to win that game barring a really standout, close to miraculous performance. Syracuse did all it could. I mean, yeah. defensively, offensively. Except struggled. make shots. Yeah. They didn't make any shots. Yeah, and they turned it over. Uh, in fact, to Coach Beheim's point here, the idea that when you go in and hold Duke 
to a season low in scoring. If we told you that ahead of time, if you said, hey, with absolute certainty, Duke's only scoring 60, well, certainly you'd think Syracuse would have a chance. They could score high 50, 60 at Duke. As it turned out, they scored 44, which is obviously not enough to get it done. You know, if you hold Duke to 60 points in here, I'd say that I don't know offhand, but they're probably averaging around 80-something in here, 87 or something in here. I'm not sure. It might be off there a little bit. You're not going to win the game if you don't score. We just didn't score. Our defense was fine. We battled them pretty good, but, uh, you know, we just didn't score. Well, this was a game that was in keeping with some of the games in the not the very start of the year, but the first half of the conference and just prior to that when you're looking at uh, St. Bonaventure, Wake Forest, Notre Dame, Games where the defense was okay, gave you a, a shot to win the game, and uh, the Orange uh, came up short on the offensive end. Obviously, you're not beating anybody when you score 44. Neither team, and I thought both teams had pretty decent looks from three-point range. Neither team shot a lick. Duke was 2 of 18 from three-point range. Syracuse, 6 of 25, and uh, two makes each. For the three, you would think Frank Howard, Tyus Battle, O'Shea, Brissett. But uh, those, in most cases, came in the too little, too late department. Syracuse has five losses this year where they've held the team to 60 or less points. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Good. I mean, but again, it shows you the defense has been able to do it. They just have not uh, gotten enough offensive punch to, uh, to make it happen. And turnovers in Syracuse's wins have, the, the, in the absence of turnovers, that's how they've went on that little spurt where they just won three out of four and they won at Miami and won at Louisville. It's because they did not commit the turnovers that they were in bunches in the early part of the season. This was another game where it was a Noah's Ark. Everybody, turnovers came two by two. Everybody that played in the game except for Barama Sidibe and, and uh, Braden Bayer got one minute of run just coming in for uh, Tyus Battle at the end. Everybody that handled the ball to any extent had at least two turnovers and O'Shea Brissett had six. Both teams struggled shooting the ball tonight about as bad as you can probably shoot the ball. I thought, you know, they were able to get some stuff in low that, you know, we can't get and that I thought that was really the difference in the game. We made some really bad turnovers in transition and just in the middle of the court, just careless turnovers that you can't make. Well, that's for sure. And, uh, those turnovers resulted in 10 points off of turnovers for Duke. I'm not sure this is accurate bookkeeping, but Syracuse credited with zero points off of Duke's 11 turnovers. And to me, the biggest takeaway was not, oh, Syracuse is in trouble. And we, we know now that they pretty much need to win, go on a three-game winning streak starting right now, BC, Clemson, and then the first game in the ACC tournament to uh, make the NCAAs. But the takeaway that was one part of it, and the you, you kind of knew that going in. And the other was that this Duke team is loaded, is coming together at the right time, and they just got Marvin Bagley back. There was some question. In fact, when we sat here the day before the game, uh, before heading down to Durham, we were working on the assumption that Bagley would not play after missing four in a row with a knee injury. Obviously, they're good without him, but I'd rather have Bagley not be here tonight. You know, he's... Very, very good down in that low area post. Uh, we did, really couldn't do much with him. I thought we did all right with all the other guys, but he's difficult down there. And not only is Bagley good in his own right, but he's good when working in tandem with Wendell Carter. 
another player where there was the slightest question as to his availability. Bagley, by the way, in his first non-start of the year, still played 31 minutes, went uh, for 19 points, 7 rebounds. He was 8 of 9 shooting because most of that was dunks. Wendell Carter, a double-double, 16 points and 10 rebounds. Carter also had 4 assists and 4 steals in 32 minutes. Uh, He is awfully productive. His name was caught up in the uh, FBI deal. His name is on a ledger that uh, is associated with this ASM agency. That's just uh, a tip of the iceberg as far as uh, we know related to uh, all of that off-the-court news, which we'll get into in a bit. But as it relates to Carter, it sounds like nothing more than a meal that was uh, purchased for his parents to meet with an agent. Uh, When that happens, the parents are supposed to pay for their part. How regularly that happens, I'm not sure, but uh, certainly – a uh, hundred dollar meal at Longhorn Steakhouse. I don't, other than maybe their choice for lunch. Was there nowhere more local or you know that they could have gone? But uh, I don't think that's worth getting uh, anybody's panties in a twist over. I can combine two things that you've talked about here. That I know you don't follow Somebody's the listening. bracket, the bracketology that often. But to put the Duke and North Carolina games in perspective for fans, I was looking at all the bracketology. Syracuse dropped one spot. In the in the tournament seedings from all the bracketologists over the two game losing streak that they've had. If they had won, they'd probably have moved up three or so. So win the next two games, and I think they're fine. I really do. I yeah, guess. enough. They, well, I think you have to win the next three. You have to win the next. The next two would get you to uh, twenty wins, nine in conference. That's really the bare minimum. I'm not saying you couldn't get in the tournament by uh, winning two and then losing in the first round of the ACC. But uh, I wouldn't sleep very easily with that. I think if you win the next three, then you're more in the tournament than out, and uh, you could only solidify it from there. Um, still without the quality win. Syracuse now has lost uh, seven games in a row against the uh, top 25. No wins this year. Last time Syracuse went the whole season without a win against the top 25 was back in 1981, the first year of the Dome, to give you an idea. So that's been an awfully long time. Clemson, the lone remaining opportunity with uh, the Tigers coming to the Dome Saturday for the uh, 2 o'clock game. 2 o'clock or 1 o'clock? 2, uh, two o'clock. As uh, the Orange take on uh, Clemson and uh, Lawrence Moton will have uniform number 21 put up. And then Marek Dolajai will wear it in the game. That's kind of how that goes. We've got Mike Waters on the show coming up a little bit later to talk uh, Orange basketball. When we come back, we're going to get into more of some of the uh, Coach Beheim sound, particularly that that related to the state of college basketball. It was uh, an interesting night and, and weekend in that those that loved the game were kind of punched in the gut with the various uh, stories and reports of some of the wrongdoing that's going on out there. Not that people weren't aware of it, but uh, now it's very public. It's very obvious that something needs to be done. And then the two winningest coaches in the history of the game played against one another and both had press conferences. So uh, that led to some interesting sound that we'll share with you from Coach Beheim coming up. Mike Waters to follow on a Monday. You're in the booth on ESPN Radio Syracuse. This is In the Booth with Matt Park. Welcome back in the booth here on ESPN Radio Syracuse. Brought to you today by Burdick Toyota and CH Insurance. In fact, for that matter, brought to you every day by Burdick Toyota and CH Insurance. We'll have Mike Waters coming up in just a moment. Back tomorrow with the show at uh, 2 o'clock. Wednesday is a game day in Boston. And then uh, Thursday, no show for Syracuse women's basketball. The Orange with a real close call yesterday 
against Boston College still go into the postseason on a four-game winning streak. And as the eighth seed in the ACC tournament, they take on a Virginia Tech team they've already beaten once this season. So that's uh, 2 o'clock on Thursday. If they win uh, Thursday, then uh, no show Friday either, but we'll keep an eye and an ear on that. Talking uh, Syracuse basketball and most specifically going through some of Coach Beheim's comments from after the game on Saturday in Durham, and that was the day. Now we're all kind of sitting at dinner when the alert comes across that uh, Sean Miller is uh, reported to have been caught on a wiretap addressing a $100,000 payment to uh, his stud freshman DeAndre Ayton to uh, secure his services in Tucson. Understand the reporting since then has kind of laid that out a little bit differently, saying, look, there's no guarantee that the payment was received. That's not really the point in the case as it relates to college basketball and the way that uh, coaches are to comport themselves. The very idea that you have a head coach on the phone talking about, hey, I'm the one that you should come to directly to arrange cash payments to players. At that point, the damage is done whether DeAndre Ayton gets a $100,000 deposit or not. Ayton's a beast. He's a first-round pick. He went on to have a, a pretty good game at Oregon that day on a day where Sean Miller did not coach, and, of course, Ayton played. And that was Saturday leading into Saturday evening. And, of course, when you are the media and you're at Cameron Indoor Stadium and you have in front of you the two winningest and longest-tenured coaches in college basketball, Mike Krzyzewski and Jim Beheim, you are not going to miss the opportunity to get their thoughts on. And uh, as Coach points out and has the unique perspective of somebody who's been uh, now 42 years in the game at his position, let alone uh, prior to that as an assistant. This is not new that uh, agents have been meddling and nosing around the top players. That is not going to stop an agent from trying to get a player. This is one agent. Do you think these other agents aren't doing anything? Do you think they're just not, not going after parents, not talking to parents or anything? We have blinders on. We have blinders on. Agents are going to do that. We talk to our players. We talk to the parents. You know, we pray that that doesn't happen, that they'll wait. But when you, you know, you just, it's as obviously as you see with these things, the things happen. Well, and they do, and that's with the agency known as ASM. Obviously, other agents, it can be, uh, the conclusion can be drawn that other agents are doing the same that it goes to other sports, et cetera. In college baseball and hockey, those players can and do have agents. They get drafted. They get drafted out of high school in many cases in those sports and then choose to go to college or not. The baseball rule is if you commit to college, you're in for three years. That's why an inordinate amount of baseball players will go to community college because that changes their options a little bit. But obviously the agents are around and uh, have been around. Uh, I believe the first part that sort of uh, precludes or comes before the uh, the soundbite you just heard from Coach Beheim when he's saying that wouldn't change the agents, he's saying about paying players. If players are, are paid, they're no less appealing to the agents. They're still going to be the jockeying for the services and the opportunity to represent players, and that's going to work through uh, the parents. The thing that I would say about it is what do you expect at the college level to be done to prevent that? And it's pretty much nothing. Right now, everybody involved in collegiate athletics, myself included, even in, in my sort of tangential uh, connection to the, the teams at Syracuse, 
we sign a form every year that says if you know about uh, infractions of compliance that you've told the appropriate authorities. In other words, if I was aware of payments being made or those types of things, which I don't know how I would be, but if you if you were, you've got to say that. Also, that you're not going to break any of these rules yourself. Um, the idea that parents meet with agents, I don't think that in and of itself is or should be legal. The once money changes hands, it gets a little bit sketchy, and it has always happened. It will continue to always happen, but it can also very often happen without any knowledge of the coaches. How are the coaches supposed to know who the parents are having lunches and dinners with and, and taking meetings with? They're not. If they do know they're supposed to turn it in, I could understand that. So this is not a huge deal. It does go hand in hand with the other part of it that some would consider a blight on the game, and that's the idea of one and done. And because so many of the top players only play one year in college, that's why the bidding wars happen when they're in school. There's always been something in in basketball, same in football. I mean, it's nothing different. Hopefully, they'll come through and get through this, get some solutions, and we've got a great game. It won't change the whole thing, but one and done would help get that out. It has to go because the best players will be out of there. Hopefully, you'll get guys that want to be in college. It's, I, I don't mind guys coming for one year. It's fine. We've had them. But if they really want to go, they should be able to go. And Bill Gates didn't want to go to college. <laughs> he did all right. I don't think you need to make people go to college. Well, that's obviously a very extreme example when you're talking about uh, the wealthiest American or close to it. But what Coach Behan's position is on this is, look, there's only a few, in his estimation, six, eight, ten, that are actually good enough to make this jump straight to the NBA. If they do it, let them go, and it doesn't really dilute the college basketball game at all when you have dozens and dozens of players in college, and we know that not everybody who goes to college is, is going to be a lifetime academic, but when you go into college with a lack of commitment in the first place or one foot out the door or I'll go through the motions one semester and then skip the next because I'm going pro, that's where these things lead to problems. Why would you feel any need to be uh, overly compliant if you don't feel as though you need to leave your school in good standing or that you have any uh, actual connection to it. And so I think a lot of smart people are going to have to get in rooms and figure out what comes next here with the uh, landscape of college basketball, uh, whether, you know, I- I'm one who believes, yeah, the players probably should be paid a little bit uh, and-, and compensated above and beyond where they are now with the scholarship. My number one thought on that is it needs to be made more of a, factor how valuable a scholarship is. Uh, I think that's too easily blown off, number one. Number two, if there's additional sort of common sense money, I think there's there's probably plenty of room. Uh, Bayham actually alluded to a, a couple of things about you know, can the money that comes in through the NCAA pay to have players' parents travel to games and all? Absolutely. These guys shouldn't be wanting um, for basic uh types of things there that the, the parents can come see them that there's just we're talking 
pretty modest dollar figures in the grand scheme of things, those things can be taken care of. But I'm not one who believes that if the players get an additional check above what they do, whether it's in the, the five, ten grand a season type thing or even up to twenty, whatever you consider sort of reasonable for a college person, I don't think that really changes anything. Then the open market could create some significant issues too. Uh, and the one example that Bayham said is, oh yeah, you'll just you know you'll have a sham job or a TV commercial that you do for a hundred grand or or whatever to to move on down the line. So this is a big mess. The Condoleezza Rice uh, Commission and some others that are getting together are going to have to figure this out. But uh, the, right now the NCAA looks bad, and they're being. Uh, kind of kept at arm's length by the FBI. And we'll see. Uh, there'll be a little bit of a black eye on the NCAA tournament this year with uh, this type of publicity that has come uh, the way of college basketball, but it's a great game, and it will, uh, it'll be great in the future. Just uh, hitting a little bit of a rough patch here in terms of uh, things that need to be figured out to uh, keep everything uh, aboard. And uh, on the up and up, Sean Miller vows that he will be vindicated with his uh, transgressions allegedly at uh, Arizona, and we'll see how that shakes out in time. In time for us is Mike Waters of Syracuse.com. We'll uh, hit some of these items with him, get his thoughts on the game, and uh, the Orange's next one is a road trip to Boston College to play the Eagles on Wednesday night. That's when we continue in the booth on ESPN Radio Syracuse. Live from the DBOffers.com, powered by Drivers Village Studio. This is ESPN Radio. 97.7 FM Syracuse. And 100.1 FM Oswego. This is In the Booth with Matt Park. In the Booth on ESPN Radio Syracuse. Our regular Thursday visit with Mike Waters bumped up a bit today. Women's basketball Thursday at 2. We wouldn't want to miss the chance to visit with Mike, look back at one game ahead to the next, and solve all of uh, college basketball's problems. So we're going to do that here in the next few minutes. How's that, Mike? Is that all right? You got... It's a full plate. Let's go. <laughs> you, got, you got 10 minutes to knock it out? Um, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> brought to you by Oswego County Mutual Insurance. Let, let's get there first, Mike what do you make of this weekend? It's not that, that a mess was created this weekend. It was just revealed for all the world to see uh, your brethren in uh, the reporting world, Pete Thamel and and uh, Pat Forty, Pizza Syracuse grad and a former uh, post-standard writer, and then um, Mark Schlebaugh of uh, ESPN. They're kind of the ones leading the, the reporting on this right now, but uh, what'd you make all of it? I was I was surprised. Um, probably shouldn't have been surprised, uh, especially with the Sean Miller news. Uh, to to have another coach, you know, a prominent coach at a really good program, uh, allegedly uh, recorded on an FBI wiretap, uh, talking about a payment of a hundred thousand dollars for a recruit, and I just don't understand the incentive uh, for, for Sean Miller to do that. I mean, he's got such a great program recruiting. You know, he's got it rolling. The only thing missing from his resume is the Final Four appearance. And we're kind of, you know, he's in that category of we all know it's going to happen soon. It's just a matter of time. Uh, it, it, make, it really shakes you to the core. I, and I think it really should shake uh, the NCAA leadership to its core. You know, why would a Sean Miller even talk about this? Uh, on the phone, and if he's talking about it, 
how many other coaches are, how many other coaches whose jobs are on the line are willing to do something, you know, you know, do something desperate. I don't see where Sean Miller's desperate. I mean, supposedly Sean Miller's goal was to end up as the next, as the North Carolina coach after Roy Williams. Mm. Well, you know, he can kiss that goodbye. He might not be the he, uh, he, North he, Carolina he, Central coach. No, I mean, if this is if this is all turns out to be true, and we got no reason to doubt it, although we should wait before a final judgment, obviously. But still, no, his coaching career should be it's probably over. Um, so you know it, that that's what shook me was not just that coaches or some coaches are doing this, and you know, listen, we've had enough NCAA violations over the years to understand stuff happens, but. At that scale, and, and for you know a guy like Sean Miller to do that that brazenly, you know we all kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge that you know oh Kentucky must be doing something, but you know really you know talking about arranging a hundred grand for a recruit just uh, to me that's beyond the pale. And 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 the other thing that, and I was just talking about this with my colleague here, Chris Carlson. Jim Beheim and some other coaches, especially Jim Beheim after the Duke game, he used the phrase, well, this is really no surprise. You know, we can go back decades where, you know, agents have been involved. I mean, at UCLA back in the early 80s, they went on probation because agents were involved with some players. Well, if we're not surprised, then how come we weren't doing something about it? And when I say we, I mean the NCAA and, and college basketball coaches and athletic directors. If we're not, where, where were these, you know, coaches who could get something done in this business? What were they doing at their conventions for the last three, four decades? If they weren't going to stand up and among their, you know, leadership say, we got to, we all have some great ideas now. I've seen a lot of ideas bandied about. Mike Krzyzewski, Jim Beheim had a, had a bunch of ideas. That they, I'm kind of surprised that these ideas haven't been coming forward sooner but at least at least now maybe we can hope for some change well a couple of quick follow-ups number one brazen is the exact word i had and it it indicates if he felt like he could talk on his phone first of all he didn't (laughs) know that the fbi was on him but it indicates he was so certain that either it was commonplace practice that everybody was doing it so who am i to stick out or that Mm -hmm. he would get away with it you know for any other uh system of reasons so that to me is alarming not just that he did it but that um he did it in that degree of openness and that the head coach you know like look at louisville louisville's whole claim is that our coach had plausible deniability (laughs) that that wasn't built in at uh at arizona is pretty alarming the other is this idea of well hey where were all these ideas before don't you think that it's now they have to protect themselves from one another. It's such a competitive industry that who was going to be the first one to speak? Nope, you know nobody was going to speak at a convention. They all throw rocks at one another and turn each other in for recruiting violations. But who's going to be the guy who True. opens up a meeting and says, uh, "You know what, everybody? I think we should, uh, you know, we should make changes that could, you know, have significant consequences if you, you know, your team's not as good and now you're getting fired because you don't win enough." Yeah, I think the reason why I'm hopeful that stuff will start to change and meaningful change and coaches will ask for change and the NCAA is going to be open to change is because now instead of something being like the worst kept secret within an industry, this industry has been exposed. This whole FBI thing and all the reporting that's going on 
has exposed this, and before their golden goose gets cooked, I think they're gonna. They know they have to change some things now. I mean, could you have ever imagined Mike Shashevsky openly talking about allowing high school recruits to engage with agents, to have agents, to to have the NCAA? credential agents and let these kids get them. Could you ever imagine him saying that um, a year ago? No, no, I can't. So, and maybe, you know, I, I think the re- the reason they're doing that now is because they understand this could all go away real fast if they don't make some significant changes. You know, I don't know that having an agent is necessarily the end of the world. Agents aren't going to go up and volunteer money to everybody. Agents are in it for the people that can make them money uh, down the road and probably, all of this is serious enough business that everybody should have some sort of advisor that's helping them either with financial concerns or certainly about whether to go pro or not and, and some of these well, decisions baseball, that are made. And the NCAA allows both baseball players and hockey players to have advisors or some sort of rep, rep, representation. So it's obviously not something that's so heinous that the NCAA is like, no, it can't happen at all. Oh, it's you know, Right. But it's okay for hockey and baseball, so I would imagine it, it could work for basketball and football too. And I agree with you. I don't think we're all going to see high school recruits all over the country getting tons of money because these agents aren't just going to hand out their own money willy nilly. No, no, and they're you know, all, that's money that they have, and and the, and the agents don't have the money that a lot of the colleges have. So. Right, except the colleges don't have as much as you think. (laughs) High school recruits will end up getting a little money, maybe enough to you know get them by the next couple years on spec. The better ones, the DeAndre Aytons, the Marvin Bagleys, uh, you know whoever those guys, yeah, they're going to command some more money because I think it's pretty obvious. Even you and I could say, you know what, if I'm an agent, Marvin Bagley's going to be a pretty good investment for me. Sure, I'm going to go talk to him and his mom and dad. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, but I can see it coming. Yeah, I mean, the, the very low-risk play, I would think, to uh, when you see these guys that are obviously going to be uh, NBA players, even if they're not going to be stars. But Marvin Bagley uh, certainly impressed those of us that were at the game on uh, Saturday. If, if he's <laughs> anybody's worth investing uh, a, a few hundred grand in, he might be the guy. As Coach Beheim pointed out after the game, look, he's going to make $100 million in his career, agent cut of that is pretty good. You know, the agent gets 10% of that. That's uh, $10 million for them. And if uh, they lop off uh, just a small chunk of that to buy somebody lunch or to, to cut a little check to, to see that they get their uh, efforts and representation, then uh, it's been worth it to this point. But I also I think... I certainly take Marvin Bagley's parents <laughs> to lunch at Red Lobster in order to <laughs> sure. get him as a client. Yes. If you take uh, that tier of, uh, of person out of the college recruiting pool, the top 8, 10, 12 recruits, then... I don't know that the next tier of guy has a significant uh, bargaining edge. Well, I mean, it'll. I think they'll still have value because, especially you know, like Jim Beheim the other night talked about getting rid of the one and done. And okay, let's go ahead and take those top eight or ten high school kids out of the college equation, so we're no longer breaking rules for them. Well, then you know what happens? Then numbers eleven through twenty become numbers one through ten. But don't you, know, you think facto. the di- the difference between let, all right, let's take the first ten out the difference okay. between the next ten and the ten after that is smaller and so on. You follow me? Yeah, there's but a they're cur- still going to have value. I mean, right. there's either going to be an agent who's still going to want to talk to numbers one uh, eleven through twenty, 
Or, and here's the thing, it doesn't cure all ills because then if that high school kid's not getting money from an agent, then, uh uh-oh, we're back to the same temptation of some college siphoning some money on the side. So we're not curing all the ills just by taking the top 10 kids out of the recruiting equation. Good stuff. It's it's not a problem we're going to uh, solve today, and uh, <laughs> you know gonna, it's going to take a lot of work. And you can tell there's there's enough people that are interested in the health of uh, college basketball that uh, hopefully this gets uh, settled and smoothed out over time. But it was certainly not a good weekend off the court. On the court, we can skip uh, Duke unless you want to uh, get into any uh, noteworthy observations you had from that one. But next up is Boston College and. I think they're again going to be in the category. Coach Beheim said it in a couple of the, the comments to us in recent games. You know, you've got a score to beat North Carolina. You've got a score to beat Duke. Syracuse is holding the opposition to less than they're used to scoring in almost every case, but can they score enough on the road uh, Wednesday night to get it done? That's a huge question. I mean, they held Duke to a season low. Uh, Syracuse did 60 points. I mean, you held Duke to a season low at camp. They held Duke to fewer points than Virginia did. I think. Yes, um, or season, season low for, for Duke, for sure. Unbelievable. Virgi- I mean, Virginia held and you lost 63. by 16. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lost by 16 in a game where you held Duke to a season low. So, no, they get, they got to find a way to score. Now, here's the thing. Duke is playing really good defense, especially lately. They rank really high in the conference in all the key defensive categories, and they're better now than they were in early January. And they got a heck of a lot better on Saturday when they put a six foot eleven kid at forward at the back end of that zone and between him and I'm talking about Marvin Bagley now between Bagley returning after missing four games and Wendell Carter in the middle and a couple of the other kids that got better while Bagley was out like Marquise Bolden and, and the DeLaurier kid. Yeah. Yep. I mean, they're, they're playing so much better than they were when they were getting only a few minutes when Bagley was there. So that's a, Good defensive team, and you don't always you haven't said that in two years about Duke. So what's Syracuse doesn't have to go up against Duke? Um, hopefully they get a little bit better on offense. So they did score seventy four against North Carolina because um, North Carolina isn't the defensive team Duke is. Mm-hmm. Syracuse can find a way to score in the seventies. Most of the time, Syracuse is going to score. I mean, going to win. Right now, Boston College isn't a great defensive team. It's an interesting matchup because BC's strengths are its perimeter guys, and it's a little weak inside, and Syracuse's strength is its perimeter guys. And on the whole, its weakness is inside, except for, like, you know, on the front line, obviously, O'Shea Brissett's pretty good. So it's, it's a tough, it's an interesting matchup because the, both teams' strengths play right up against each other. Yeah. All right. Looking forward to it. We'll have to cut you loose here, Michael, and, and wish you safe travels. Uh, would point out that Syracuse shot 60% from the field in the first meeting with BC. Going to be hard to repeat that on the road. So uh, we'll, we'll mm-hmm. see how that comes. But it is a game they obviously cannot afford to lose to have uh, NCAA tournament hopes. All right. Safe travel and uh, see you Wednesday. Matt, good talk to you soon. Thanks, but Hey, that's a little more time. Have a plan. Have it all fixed by Wednesday night. All right. I'll give you a little reprieve here. Okay. I'll try. <laughs> Mike Waters of uh, Syracuse.com brought to you by Oswego County Mutual Insurance. To Mike's point, Duke has given up less than 58 points in the past four games. So, yeah, nobody scored over 60 So well, in the past four games against the, the game Saturday night was actually Duke's closest home game in the last four. That's how they've been rolling. They won 
their previous three home games by 22-plus. Yeah, they've, they gave up 52 to Virginia Tech, 57 to Clemson, 56 to Louisville, 44 to Syracuse. Right, and those are teams that are on the bubble or better, you know, in, in a lot of those. So, you know, to me, I, I don't make a whole lot of it. Duke's a really talented team. I don't think losing there uh, is uh, the end of the world, except that at this point in the season, you're running out of time to win some of these games. I, I would make the argument that there's some encouraging signs if that game was back in February or, or late January and you still had the whole uh, season ahead. But uh, right now you're talking about uh, starting to run out of time and uh, no margin for error. Back uh, for our error, Joe Salzone. We continue in the booth on ESPN Radio Syracuse. All the best local takes, Orange Nation. At least you think you've got a chance of beating one of those teams. But in order to win these games, they need the other guys to, to do their job. Matt Park. They you know, needed somebody that could spell Dolishai a little bit. Not literally spell Dolishai because that's kind of hard. Pretty hard. Daniel Baldwin. We are a sports radio show. And we have all these other guys here. I mean, Matt Park, is he, he's over the hill. Brent Axe. We forget the most basic, fundamental things sometimes. That's somebody's kid. This is college sports. You're that weird in between. ESPN 97.7 and 100.1. The Orange women return to Greensboro for the ACC tournament this Thursday. Syracuse and Virginia Tech tip it to Orange pregame 145 right here on ESPN 97.7. Do we care? Interesting. I doubt it. No, wait. The other thing. Tedious. But we will do this segment anyway. Don't care anymore. Here's Joe Salzone. It was all a plan. Iowa sophomore Jordan Bohannon missed a free throw on purpose so he would not beat Chris Street's record set at 35 back in 1993. Street died in a car wreck a few days after setting the record for the Hawkeyes. Yeah, he's, uh, Chris Street is a guy that you know they look upon uh, fondly in, in uh, Iowa basketball family in the way that we would think of maybe Conrad McRae who was a very likable, hardworking player and, and died too soon. In, in Conrad's case, uh, you know, while playing with an enlarged uh, heart type of condition. But uh, street car accident uh, some 25 years ago, and this was a very cool gesture on the behalf of Bohannon. Almost risked the game. It was in a situation where uh, probably did not behoove him to be missing uh, free throws. But to have that idea for it to all line up and, and to execute it, he's tight with uh, Street's family. I think that's very cool, and Iowa uh, then was able to steal an inbound pass right after that and, and go on and seal the win. A fan in attendance at the Honda Classic in Florida was kicked out, and it was all picked up on a live mic. Justin Thomas apparently requested the fan be removed for cheering against him. CBS microphones caught the exchange. Who said that? There we go. Absolutely perfect Who's again. For that ball to get the ball's still running. Is that you? He nailed that hey, thing. All right, so we're going to play it back so you can get a little feel for what's going on here. This is ripped off of television, obviously. Gary McCord is calling the action. If you see the video of this, it's the split screen with the tracer, and Justin Thomas hits a perfect uh, tee ball right into the, the middle of the fairway. I don't think you can actually hear on this sound. We'll listen closely if anybody actually yells anything. And then it's Justin Thomas, the player. There we go. Absolutely perfect again. For that ball to get the ball's the still running. Is that you? He nailed that hey, thing. Your day, buddy. You're gone. Got right there. This is brutal. Uh, Justin Thomas did go on to win the tournament. Um, 
And I want to like Justin Thomas. He's tight with uh, Jordan Spieth, who's a really likable, easy-to-follow guy. He's obviously an extraordinary player, has won a major, uh, won the PGA Championship last year, and I love golf. But come on. Um, rooting for somebody to fail, or and the, first of all, you're a tool to do it, but it's not against the rules or illegal or it's no more distracting. I don't like the you know the guy that yells mashed potato and tries to distract the players or tries to you know be an attention grabbing clown. That's stupid, but it's not necessarily grounds for removal. And you know, get in the bunker is not grounds for removal. Give yeah, me a break. all he was doing, he didn't yell as he was hitting. He just yelled, "Get in the bunker!" after he hit it. Right. Maybe he doesn't like him. Who cares? Well, maybe he likes the next guy. You know, the guy Luke List. Maybe he's a big Luke List fan. Are there any big Luke List fans? Probably not. But but then the microphone caught him again, Joe. That's right. Uh, after he won, CBS microphones caught Thomas dropping an F-bomb. Kick him out. Was it a, uh F-bomb of celebration, though? Probably, right? Exaltation? Well, yeah. I guess that's real emotion. But uh, at this day and age, with all the media we have, you should probably... Uh, be a little more careful. Dewey Care is brought to you by Cam's Pizzeria. Cam's love at first slice. Every okay. microphone is a live microphone. Every live, every camera is hot. I'm going to celebrate that we got to cut this segment. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Two out of three ain't bad there, Joe. Hit that dump button, Polly. All right, back tomorrow, 2 o'clock. Joe just missed from pitiful. half the distance that I usually attend. <laughs> Let me see the first one of the week here. Last seconds. Shot clock at 15 it's good if it goes. seconds remaining in the show. Bang, I'm back, baby. Off the glass and home for the first shot of the week. All right, thank you, Joe, Polly. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to Mike Waters, of course. Back tomorrow in the booth on ESPN Radio Home of the Syracuse Crunch. Mitchell Stevens across. Here's a shot. Score! Kevin Lynch ties the game. Atkinson left side. Shoots. He scores! Picked off by another. Pekka takes it. For Lynch who shoots. He scores. Kevin Lynch with 103 to go in the third period. Gives the crunch its first lead. It's 3-2. to two. ESPN 97.7, 100.1, 1200 and 1440 AM.